I uh, think that many of us could agree that as far as the uh, Christian calendar goes, uh, there's nothing more exciting than, than Resurrection Day. And I personally love when we get to celebrate the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you do too. I think it's a good question to ask, why? If the resurrection of Jesus Christ is important to you, why is it important? And I think that probably each of us have a, a different uh, aspect of it that makes it a favorite for us. Maybe it is the, that the resurrection is the proof that Jesus is who he says he is, that he rose as he promised he would. Or maybe it is that the resurrection brings comfort to you, that you know that your living Lord is reigning now in heaven, that as Sam read earlier, that he is with you to the end of the ages, that all authority on heaven and earth has been given to him. Maybe the resurrection is important to you because it is the evidence that Christ's sacrifice for your sins has been accepted. As it says in Romans, that he was raised for our justification. Maybe it's the fact that the resurrection is evidence of your union with your living Lord through whom you can now please your heavenly Father. This morning, we're going to examine four glorious realities which depend upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that his resurrection increases in significance to you. We're going to look at four glorious realities which depend upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ so that his resurrection increases in significance to you. So by God's grace, after this morning, even though the resurrection might be important to you, and maybe for all of those reasons already said, so that at the end of this morning, we'll meditate on his resurrection more, and we'll talk about his resurrection more, and we'll hope in his resurrection that we'll rely on his resur resurrection, that we'll rejoice in it more, so that our gospel-centeredness will have more resurrection in it, that it will have more empty tomb in it, that the resurrection won't be a footnote of the gospel. I think that probably many of us have had that experience in proclaiming the gospel, that the resurrection gets kind of attached at the end, like we've got to staple that on as an addendum. By God's grace, the resurrection is going to be more important to you at the end of this morning. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 Corinthians 15. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul responds to a teaching that was spreading through the first century church in Corinth. It was the teaching that believers who died wouldn't receive resurrected bodies. That although Christ rose from the dead... Those he died to save wouldn't rise from the dead. And Paul doesn't get into the origin of this false teaching. Perhaps the, the Corinthian church had been influenced by Greek presuppositions that the physical world was bad and that the spiritual world was good. Maybe for these Greeks, they saw death as the escape of the immortal soul from the sinful body, so that a resurrected body to them may have seemed like a step backward. Well, in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, 
Paul reminds the Corinthians the centrality of Jesus' resurrection to the gospel message. In verses 12 through 19, Paul exposes what the tragic consequences would be if there weren't a bodily resurrection. Focusing, though, on, well, what if Jesus didn't rise from the dead? And Paul's reasoning there is, since Jesus rose from the dead, there is going to be other resurrection from the dead. But if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, um, well, and we will review in a minute what the tragic consequences would be. In verses 20 to 28 that we're going to focus on this morning, Paul describes these glorious realities that result from Christ's resurrection. So I'm going to read now from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 20 to 28. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in, in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who has subjected all things to him so that God may be all in all. Let's pray. Father, we are uh, those those who are by your grace, those of us who believe who are in Christ, we are those who cherish the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And there are so many reasons we could rejoice in it this morning. The, the evidence of our justification and the fact that he has been, uh, Jesus has been proclaimed to be your son through his resurrection from the dead and our union with our living Lord, our ability to live a life pleasing to you. Father, there's so many reasons to hope in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and I pray that this passage, as we understand it by your grace in uh, the next uh, minutes here, Lord, that it would um, be impacting to us, that we would see the resurrection of Jesus Christ in a greater context, that we would understand these realities that are the result of his resurrection, and that we would have more an anticipation of what is coming because we know that Jesus rose from the dead. Father, I pray that your word would be clear. I pray, Father, that your spirit would work in the hearts of your people. I pray, Lord, that you would be working so that we would become more like Jesus Christ. Pray, Father, that you would be exalted as all in all. We pray, Father, for those here this morning who don't know you, Lord, that they uh, would see this incredible plan that you are unfolding for human history and that they would be eager to be part of it, eager to become your worshipers. Thank you for your word, and uh, please uh, uh, bless it this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The, uh, first, glorious the first glorious reality we're going to see is in verses 20 to 22. And the first glorious reality is this, the resurrection of Christ 
guarantees the resurrection of those who are in Christ. The resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of those who are in Christ. And we'll talk about that phrase, in Christ, in a minute and what that exactly means. Verse 20 says, of 1 Corinthians 15, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. And that but now is a powerful but now. It is in contrast to what Paul had been speculating for the sake, for, for the sake of, of argument, speculating if Christ hadn't raised from the dead. Now, Paul had begun this, this argument that, that, that those who are in Christ Jesus are going to be physically resurrected in verses 3 through 8 of chapter 15. And it was there that he began with these gospel facts. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve. And after that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. It means that they died. Then he appeared to James, and all to the, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. This is the gospel which the Corinthians had believed. They believed that Jesus had risen from the dead, that he had bodily risen. And they had put their faith in this risen Jesus Christ. It was attested to by many who had seen the Lord Jesus Christ. But then in verses 12 through 19, Paul continues. He leaves this world of facts to dialogue in the realm of what-ifs, in the realm of, of conjectures, and even the realm of nightmares. I'll read some of that in verses 14 to 19. If Christ has not been, been raised, he has. But if he hasn't, then our preaching is, is in vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. He's just saying, he's speculating. If Christ didn't raise them, we're liars. We're, we're, we're lying about God. We're lying against God. Verse 16. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins if Christ hasn't been raised. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. There's no hope for them. They're dead in their sins. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Now, fortunately, though, in verse 20, Paul leaves this, this, this realm of speculation and he returns to this world of facts. And he does that with this phrase, but now. And it's a hopeful, eternity-defining but now. Here's the good news. That what if that we just imagined, it's not true. But now, it says in verse 20, Christ has been raised from the dead. And then he describes Christ as the first fruits of those who are, who are asleep. Now, first fruits were the first produce taken from a crop. It would be the first sheaf or the first bundle of grain. It's the first bushel of apples from your orchard. Or here, first bushel of lemons, I guess. In, Le in Leviticus 23, verses 10 through 11, God commanded Israel what they were to do with the first fruits. It says, when you enter the land which I am giving 
which I'm going to give to you and reap its harvest. Then you shall bring in the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. Gather together the first produce of the land. He shall wave the sheaf before the Lord for you to be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall, shall wave it. Now, what is fascinating about this, this, this first fruit offering that was brought to the Lord, they brought the first fruit on the day after the Sabbath following Passover, which is today, the Lord's day, the day in which Christ raised from the dead. The first fruits were a portion that was consecrated to the Lord. It was given to the Lord in faith that more would follow. And that first fruits was a guarantee that more was coming. The resurrected Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, those who are asleep is a euphemism, a, a nice way of saying those who have died. It's referring to here those who have fallen asleep, and we see in context those who have died after putting their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We see that back in verse 18. Paul describes these who have fallen asleep in Christ. In verse 19, he describes them as those who have hoped in Christ. See, Jesus' bodily resurrection is a guarantee of the bodily resurrection of those who have died believing in him for whom he is their only hope. In verses 21 and 22, Paul goes forward and develops this idea of first fruits a little bit more. Verse 21, he explains why Christ is the first fruits. He says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Human death came through a man, Adam. As clearly, as clearly taught in Genesis 2.17. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God commanded Adam, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And in the day when Adam disobeyed God, he spiritually died, but he eventually physic, physically died as well. So we shouldn't be surprised that if death came to humanity through a man, that resurrection from the dead would also come through a man. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Paul explains further in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Now Adam was the representative of humanity. When Adam ate of that tree, when Adam disobeyed God in the garden of of Eden, all men became sinners. And eventually all will die. Romans 5 verse 12 talks about this. The apostle Paul says, just as through one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sin. Paul says, as in Adam, all die. We die because we are all in Adam. He is our representative, and we sin following his sin. But there is not only an in Adam, praise the Lord. By God's grace, there is also a in Christ. It says, in Christ, all will be made alive. Now, it's clear from context here that the Apostle Paul means all those who have put their faith in Christ, who are represented by Christ, who hope in Christ, who cling to Christ alone as their only hope to escape God's wrath who have turned from sin and have found new life in Christ. In 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30, 
referring of God, it says, but by his doing, by God's doing, you are in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to be in Christ Jesus? Who became to us, Christ became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is what it means to be in Christ Jesus. It is to come before God empty, having none of those things, having no righteousness and no right standing with God and no holiness and no wisdom, coming before God completely impoverished, completely spiritually bankrupt, deserving of only hell. And to come to Christ saying, Lord, I need righteousness. I need justification. I need wisdom. I need sanctification. And to find those things in Christ alone through faith. That is what it means to be in Christ Jesus. And all of those who are in Christ will be made alive. See, Jesus is not alone in his resurrection from the dead. Because Christ rose from the dead, those who, are, those who are in Christ will rise from the dead. Your loved ones who passed away in Christ Jesus will rise from the dead. And the question for you this morning is, will you be resurrected from the dead? Will you be resurrected to live as a real human with a real body? To spend eternity in God's kingdom? To spend eternity loving God the Father, serving God the Father, knowing God the Father, delighting in Him, being satisfied in Him, and joyfully obeying Him. Well, you will if you are in Christ Jesus. It is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. A great, great test of whether you are in Christ Jesus is if that sounds wonderful to you. If that is what you are longing for, to worship your Father with perfect obedience, to delight in His presence, to yearn for that day when you only obey Him, when you desire nothing but Him, it's a great test of whether you are in Christ Jesus, if that's your heart's yearning. So there's the first glorious reality, the resurrection of Jesus Christ guarantees the resurrection of those who are in Christ. And there's a second glorious reality in these verses too. The resurrection of Christ anticipates God's universal, visible victory. The resurrection of Christ anticipates, it looks forward to, it predicts. It's the first step of God's universal, visible victory. We see this in verses 23 and 24. See, the resurrection of Christ guarantees more than our resurrection. In 1 Corinthians 15, 23, Paul begins, but each in his own order. Paul discusses the order of, of events that are of universal importance. Each event must take place in the proper order, like dominoes in a line. You tip one over and the next one is going to fall, or, or, or a chain reaction where, where, where one reaction leads to another. All of a sudden, I realize I don't know anything about chemicals, and I see Brother Tom out there. I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> Paul's goal is not to provide an exhaustive timeline of future events here. He, he's just pointing a couple of the highlights 
Remember, he's got a point here. He's, he's proving in 1 Corinthians 15, not the resurrection of Christ, but that, but that believers will be bodily re resurrected. So he's not dealing with everything that has to do with the end of the ages. He's, he's dealing with some events. And the first event, though, the first event in this order is the resurrection of Christ, the uh, first fruits. The resurrection of Christ anticipates the next event. And the second event is a resurrection of those who are in, who are Christ at his coming. 1 Corinthians 15, 23 says, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, the first event. Then the second event, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. Paul specifies when this resurrection of those belonging to Christ takes place at his coming. The word is, in Greek is, is used of a ruler or a high official visiting his people, or even one of the Greek gods uh, uh, arriving to visit his people. It's the grand entrance of Jesus Christ into human history. This resurrection will happen at Christ's return. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18 tells more about that. I'm going to read some of that to you. It says, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, about those who have died in Christ, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus Christ died and rose again, so he's making the same argument as he does in 1 Corinthians 15, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, those who are on earth when he returns, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The resurrection of those who fall asleep in Christ is going to happen. This is that second event that Paul talks about. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall always be with the Lord. So far, 2,000 years have passed and we are still waiting eagerly for this arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, for his second coming. But, and we're, we're encouraged, we're comforted by the order of events here in verse 23. Each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming. So that's the second event. And the second event happens. Then the third event is going to happen as well. And we see that in the beginning of verse 24. Then comes the end. The end. It's the culmination of redemptive history, of God's plan to reconcile to himself sinners. And even as we read in, in, in Colossians this morning, all things. The end is both the last scene of the final act of God's first creation, the last scene of the final act of God's first creation, but it's also the curtain being opened on God's next production, the new heavens and the new earth. It is the end of the old and the beginning of what's next. The end, the end that Paul's talking about here is nothing less than the visible, eternal, universal victory of God himself. This end, this, 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 this culmination, this conclusion, this, this destination of human history is described by Paul in verse 24 with two parallel phrases. He says, then comes the end, and then he describes it twice. 
when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God, to the God and Father. And then second, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. And both of these phrases describe the conclusion of the timeline of earth. God's resurrected son will vanquish every demonic power, will exile to hell every rebel heart, will reduce to rubble every lie, will destroy every godless religion, every false ideology, every hopeless philosophy. God's resurrected son will decimate all that has exalted itself against God. Everyone on God's new earth will be his willing and loving and loyal subjects. Jesus' dominion will be complete and uncontested, visible and universal. And in submission to the Father, after total conquest, Jesus hands the keys of the kingdom to the Father. Having accomplished all the work that the Father had assigned for him, the Son has claimed house. He has completed the renovation, and God will make his dwelling among men. See, without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, human history would never reach this, cul this, this culmination. It would never reach this appointed end. The resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the first domino that falls in these sequence of events. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ, war with God would continue for eternity. But Jesus Christ had to rise. Death could not hold Jesus. Jesus Christ had to rise. We see that in Acts 24. It says that God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. It was impossible for Jesus to be held by death. Because of Christ's resurrection, the future of this earth is certain. Why do we know where all this is going? Because Christ rose from the dead. Jesus will deliver the kingdom to God the Father. Jesus will abolish all rule and all authority and power. God's universal victory is waiting to be revealed, and it is guaranteed by Jesus' rising from the dead. So the first glorious reality we looked at is that the resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of those who are in Christ. The resurrection of Christ precedes and anticipates God's universal visible victory. And three, the resurrection of Christ endures, ensures the destruction of death. The resurrection of Christ ensures the destruction of death. This is where Paul goes next in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 25 and 26. It says, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. At the end of verse 25, when Paul says he has put all his enemies under his feet, Paul is likely alluding to Psalm 110, verse 1, used by Jesus and often by the apostles as well, where it says, the Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. 
And in this Psalm of David, David is talking about how Yahweh is saying to David's Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's a Psalm of David in which David predicted that Jesus, David's future Lord, would reign supreme. The risen Jesus, God the man, in his resurrected body now, is sitting and reigning at God the Father's metaphorical right hand. We know that God is spirit. He doesn't have an actual physical hand. But Jesus is at the right hand of God the Father. Hebrews 1.3 talks about when Jesus did this in the second half of the verse. When he had made purification of sins. That's what Jesus did on the cross. He had made purification of sin so that we can be forgiven. When he had made purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Ephesians 1, verses 20 and 21 says, When God raised him, Jesus, from the dead, and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. God, the Father, exalted Jesus to the place of dominance above all. 1 Peter 3.22 describes Jesus. He's at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. Everything is under subjection to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what Sam read in Matthew 28.18. Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. This is what happened to our resurrected Jesus Christ. He sat down and was given reign over everything. The resurrected Jesus is the reigning Jesus. The resurrected Jesus has all authority. The resurrected Jesus is the king of creation. And yet, the resurrected Jesus has not yet put all his enemies under his foot. It says in verse 25, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And under his feet there refers to the ancient practice of how a victorious king would put his foot on the throat of his defeated enemy. Not, not, to, not to kill that defeated enemy, but to demonstrate that that enemy was completely subjugated to that king. Jesus will reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. God's enemies are under Christ's authority, but they have not yet submitted to his sovereignty. Psalm 2 verses 1, one through 3 describes the protest of Christ's rule. Why do the nations rage? And the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord, against Yahweh, and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Jesus has all authority over them, and they're still shaking their fists, saying, I want to be free. God has demanded their submission, but he has not yet enforced their submission. Eventually, every enemy will be under the foot of Christ. Every enemy, including death itself. That's where Paul goes at verse 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. 
like everything else in the universe, death has been subjected to the resurrected Jesus Christ. Those who have placed their faith in Christ, who are new creatures in Christ, have no reason to fear death. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 57, at the end of the chapter, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are in Christ have victory over death. In Revelation 1.18, Jesus is described as, Jesus describes himself as the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. Jesus has exalted himself over death and Hades. So he is supreme. And yet, death still fights. Death still claims as many victims as it can. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 56, you can think of this as, a, as death has two weapons. Death has two weapons. And he says in verse 56, the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. Death has two weapons. And one weapon is sin. In one hand, he has sin, and he allures with sin. And as we, as, as sinners, choose sin, death claims its victim. Death kills with our sin. But death has another weapon, and it's the law. Death has a crushing blow with the law, with God's holy commands. But with God's commands, death keeps its hopeless victims down. They have no possibility of ever completely obeying God's law. So on one hand, they love sin and die because of it. And then on the other, they're beat down by the law because they can't keep it. And that's why Paul goes where he goes in verse 57. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. See, our attempts to keep the law will not abolish death. We cannot escape death in our own. There's no amount of law keeping, of doing good, of giving, of being generous, of caring about social causes. There's nothing we can do that can rescue us from sin and death. That victory is in Jesus Christ alone. Jesus Christ, who perfectly kept the law, will abolish death. Hebrews 2 verses 14 to 15 talks about this. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, since humans fair share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise also partook of the same. Jesus, God the Son, took on flesh and blood that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So it is an incredible passage describing how Jesus rescues us by taking on flesh and blood to rescue us from Satan who has the power of death. And we saw in, in, in 1 Corinthians, death pictured as having the sting of death is sin. And the power of sin is in the law. And all of these were working together to keep us enslaved, fearing death, knowing that we were sinners, knowing that the law was against us and fearing death. But Jesus, who perfectly kept the law in the place of sinners, will abolish death. The only one who could defeat death is the one whom death could not defeat. At the end of Jesus' thousand-year reign on earth, Jesus will destroy death. Revelation 20, verse 14. 
It says, then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, that doesn't mean that, that, that the rebel souls of the universe are going to be somehow uh, annihilated. The Bible is very clear that, that those who die in rebellion against the Lord will suffer eternal punishment away from the Lord. But there will be no more death for God's people. There will be no more death for anyone. There will be no one left to die because of our new life in Christ. Revelation 21 verse 4 says that God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. Death will no longer be an operating force in the universe. Sin will be eradicated. Satan will be eternally evicted. Death will be destroyed, and God's law will be our delight. We'll feel no more condemnation from it forever. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, describing our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and, and, Im, and immortality to light through the gospel. Who abolished death and brought life and, Im, and immortality to light through the gospel. Have you participated in this life and, and, Im, and immortality, excuse me, through the gospel? Through the good news that when Jesus died, he died in the place of sinners. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he died so that we could have eternal life. Or maybe you're still in slavery to the fear of death. Does death scare you? I don't mean just the process of dying, which of course is, is, is a disturbing thought. But, but death itself. Do you know what will happen to you? Do you know if you are a new creature in Christ? Do you know this life and immortality we have through the gospel, through believing in the Lord Jesus Christ? This is why the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so important. Yes, there's, there's all those other blessings we talked about in the first opening minutes, but there's these glorious realities that follow the resurrection of Jesus Christ. There is the resurrection of those who are in Christ. There is God's universal, visible victory, which doesn't happen until Christ rose from the dead. There's the destruction of death itself. And last, the fourth glorious reality, the resurrection of Christ culminates in the eternal exaltation of God. The resurrection of Christ terminates, culminates in the eternal exaltation of God. This is where Paul goes in verse 27. Verse 27 begins with Paul referencing Psalm 8, verse 6. It, be, it begins, For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. Psalm 8 is a psalm which King David praises God for his creation, including God's creation of man. It's a psalm in which David marvels that God allows man to rule over the creation he had made. But now, Paul applies this phrase from Psalm 8, verse 6, to the resurrected son of David, Jesus Christ, to whom God has submitted everything. Not just physical creation, but the supernatural world, and even death itself. 
It says, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. God the Father has placed everything in the Son's control. And this is only possible because he is the resurrected Son. Now, Paul prevents some confusion at the end of verse 27. I think probably confusion that none of us have here. But it seemed to be a, 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 a confusion that they had in, in the Corinthian church. So Paul wants to make, make extra clear, and we'll talk about this again in a minute. It says in verse 27, for he has put all things in subjection under his feet. God has put everything in, in subjection under the feet of Christ. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. That is a little confusing. And the idea there is that God the Father is not under the subjection of Jesus Christ, God the Son. When God the Father put all things in subjection under the Son, that didn't include God the Father. The Father, Son, and Spirit are identical in nature, but they are different in persons. There's one God in three persons. The Father and Son have different roles within the, within the Trinity. The Son... God the Son would no longer be the Son. He would no longer be God if he desired the Father to be subject to the Son. The Son loves being the Son, and the Father loves being the Father, and the Spirit loves being the Spirit, and they each have their own role within the Trinity. The Father commands the Son. The Father gives authority to the Son, and the Son delights in doing the Father's will. In verse 28, Paul continues. When all things are subjected to him, when, when all things are subjected to the Son, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. And I thank you for your patience here, as I know that these phrases kind of get tight. When all things are subjected to him, when on earth everything is visibly seen, subjected, to Jesus Christ, when he, his reign is, I mean, he has all authority on heaven and earth now, but when that reign becomes visible, when, 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 when Satan is expelled, when sin is destroyed, when death is abolished, second half of verse 28, then the son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him. It's not like he's not subjected to the father now. The Son is subjected to the Father. Now he loves submitting to the Father. It's not like this is a change that is, is happening. This will continue for eternity, but there's a purpose to it. See, when the resurrected Christ is exalted over all, when his foot is on the throat of his enemy, when every demon is cast into hell, when death itself is destroyed, Christ will continue as he always has eager to do the Father's will, his grand purpose being the universal recognition of the supremacy of God. And that is what Jesus is going for, the universal recognition of the supremacy of God. When everything is submitted to the Son, that doesn't change the Son's submission to the Father. And perhaps this was an area of, of, of some confusion in Corinth. Listen to, to, to a couple um, ways that, that Paul makes this clear. In 1 Corinthians 3, verse 23, 
It talks, he's saying, saying to the Corinthians, you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. 1 Corinthians 8, verse 6, Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. He's not saying that Jesus Christ is not God. Lord would be a way of saying God. But he's making a distinction in role there. In 1 Corinthians eleven three. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and God is the head of Christ. Paul is showing the supremacy of God the Father, as the Son is submitted to him. See, the resurrection of Christ ends in verse 28 with this grand purpose. So that God may be all in all. When all things, verse 28, are subjected to Christ, then the Son, Jesus Christ himself, also will be subjected to God, who subjected all things to Jesus, so that God may be all in all. And this is the Son's purpose. This has been his eternal purpose. The resurrection of Christ culminates in a renewed, remade, eternal creation that is unified in exalting God all in all. The heart of every living being will be dominated by love of God as he is, as the word of God, the son has made him known to be. The eye of every creature will be transfixed on the glory of God. The song of every mouth will resound with the theme of the one who is all in all and all hearts will be united in God who is all in all. This is what God's people have to look forward to because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We, have forward, we look forward to redeemed creation, eternally exalting God who is all in all. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is about our justification. And it is about our sanctification. But the resurrection Jesus Christ is also the beginning of our redeemed eternity. The resurrection of Christ guarantees the resurrection of those who are in Christ. The resurrection of Christ anticipates God's universal, visible victory. It ensures the destruction of death. It culminates in the eternal exaltation of God. So as you celebrate this morning, and I hope your hearts are full of celebration at what the resurrection of Christ has accomplished. I know we haven't seen it all, but it has accomplished. It's certain because Christ is alive. So as you celebrate this morning, may you have more hope because of Christ's resurrection. May you have more joy and more confidence because of his resurrection. And may his resurrection be more central to how you face tomorrow. With the resurrection of Christ, the first domino of God's cosmic restoration has fallen. And everything else is going to fall in order. Christ will return because Jesus rose from the dead. And God will be all in all because Christ rose from the dead. Let's pray. Father, our, our, our hearts, and as we as, as individuals, maybe this is something uh, we can do uh, today around lunch tables and 
in conversations, talk about um, why the resurrection is so important to us. And I do think, Father, in this passage, um, we were blessed to spend time thinking in ways that we may not normally. That we see Christ's resurrection, not just his death as payment for sins, but his resurrection as, as the beginning, as, as the first step of everything that follows. That the end, that the culmination, the, the, the grand purpose, the design for all of human history is guaranteed because your son rose. And what hope there is here for us because Christ lives now. Father, every one of us in here may die before Christ returns and we know that we will be resurrected. Lord, we know that, that, that your universal reign is coming, that everything will be subjected to Jesus Christ, that all of sin will be abolished and that death will be destroyed and that you will be all in all. And Lord, we love the resurrection of Christ and we love looking forward to the return of Christ and we look forward to that, to that final stage when we get to enter the eternal state. And I pray, Father, in your grace that it is more appealing to us this morning than, than ever before. Lord, that the hearts of your people, those who are in Christ, would be unified around Christ's purpose of seeing you as Father exalted all in all. Oh, Father, may that propel us uh, and push us toward evangelism in this upcoming week because we know where all this is going. Because Christ has already been raised because the, start, uh, the, the, the stopwatch has started and the time is running out. Lord, we do pray, Father, for those who are here this morning who are not in Christ. Lord, they are stiff-arming hope. All they have to look forward to is death and destruction away from your presence. Lord, what a horrible thing to die your enemy, forever shaking your fist, forever, forever shaking their fist against you, forever resenting that you are all in all. Oh Lord, may they, may they see the utter hopelessness of that and turn to you. May they see the resurrection of Christ and get on board with your program for the universe. Lord, you are a God who saves. There is life and immortality in the gospel of your son, Jesus Christ. And so we do pray that you save. Whether today, use us as instruments uh, to proclaim the gospel in this upcoming week. And may hearts be encouraged by the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.